Well, hello, everyone. Hey, it's great to be together. Pastor Tom here, and I am excited to get into the text today. This is one of those chapters we're going to be studying today that can really challenge you as you uh, read into it. So I'm excited to dig deeper into the text and really uncover the things that God has laid out for us today. Go ahead and be grabbing your Bibles and be turning your attention to Exodus chapter 21. And let me say a few things about this chapter before we jump into the text. Here in chapter 21, God is going to be establishing the laws for right living, the way we live our lives. But what I want us to understand is that these laws aren't just some random laws, random rules that God gave the people to control them, because many people think that. But what I want us to really focus in on is that these laws, these, these commands come from the, the character of God. They really come from God's heart. The character of God is justice and kindness and mercy and goodness. And what I really need to get our minds around is the fact that God gave us the Ten Commandments, but there were supplemental laws to help us govern ourselves. And one of the things that we all need to understand going into this is that these people, this budding nation of people, two to three million people, really didn't have any laws to govern themselves. Remember, they'd only been out of Egypt three months or so. And uh, God needed to give them a structure. You know, we take that for granted in our world today. We have laws, we have structure, we have a constitution. And so we have a way of governing ourselves. But remember, the Bible says that these people were a mixed multitude of people. That they were people who thought differently. They had different backgrounds. They were in different places of their faith. Some of these people were fresh out of pagan worship. Some of these people were Egyptians who looked at the God of, of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, as the more powerful of all the gods. You know, like, this is the God who wins. I want to be on his side. Look what he did to us in Egypt. And so they saw it more as a bunch of gods. They had pagan worship. Other Hebrews themselves, some of them men, were very faithful men. They, they feared God. They loved truth. They hated dishonest gain. And other men may have been thinking, God, what have you done for me lately? All I know is I've been a slave all my life. My father was a slave. My grandfather was a slave. That's all I've known is slavery. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what are, where are you at now in my life? And so we see this mixed mul multitude with different attitudes, different ways of processing information. They thought differently. But the one thing they had in common is they definitely were all influenced by Egyptian idolatry. And so God wanted to give them a universal set of law, laws that they could live by. Realize that these men, they had been told what to do all their lives. They had been told when, when to do it. They had been told what to think. They hadn't governed themselves in hundreds and hundreds of years. So God intervenes here intervenes here and gives them some laws to help them govern themselves. Now, when we left off back in chapter 19, right before we got the Ten Commandments, the people were very enthusiastic about the promises of God. You remember when Moses had told them, these are the rules that God has given us about approaching him, approaching the mountain. Don't come up the mountain on your own. There's going to be some boundary markers. Don't even let your animals approach. And they were excited. They were enthusiastic. And they said, yeah, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And remember, if you remember when I uh, taught that, I had you even say that two or three times. So they were 
they were enthusiastic about the promises of God, but we shall see if that lasts. So let's jump into the text, Exodus 21. Let's begin in verse 1. And the Bible says this, Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. Now, real quickly, this word ordinances means judgments. Now, depending on your translation of the Bible, it may say judgments right there, but it means judgments or uh, a ju- uh, judicial decisions. So it m- could very easily read, now these are the judgments which you are to set before them. Verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go free as a free man without payment. Now, before we go on, I think I need to say a few things about this word slavery or, or servant, depending on your translation. I read one translation that uses the word serf. But in the Hebrew, slave, servant, serf, they all mean the same thing. It's just one word. But if we don't talk about this now, if we don't spend a few minutes kind of clearing a few things up about this word slavery, you will struggle with the following passages. Because you may be of the mindset that says, well, God seems to be advocating slavery. But what I want us to understand is, don't think of God expressing his approval just because there's the presence of this conditional clause, if. Because it says, if you buy a Hebrew slave. Many Old Testament laws begin with conditional clauses. Many or if. You'll find this when we read more of these laws. Many, if, it's a conditional clause. Let let me put it to you this way. If I say to you, if a man robs a liquor store, don't shoot him on sight, just call the cops. I'm not condoning robbing liquor stores. You see what I mean? It's the same thing with this law right here. It's It's the same situation exactly. As well, I want to say this about slavery. There is a big difference between slavery and servitude in the Bible. In a biblical context, radically different. I'll touch on servitude in just a minute, but also when it comes to slavery, the way most slaves were acquired in ancient times was through the spoils of war. For example, if a nation attacked Israel and there was this big battle, whoever won the battle would take the people who survived as their servants. That's just the way it was in ancient times. But most of the time, it was the Jews who lost. It was the Jews who were taken in as slaves. But it did work both ways. It's just the way, look, it's just the way sinful men dealt with one another when it came to war. Now, sometimes people became slaves for political reasons, as was the case with the Hebrews Uh, Back in Egypt, remember, a new pharaoh rose up to power. Early on in Exodus, we studied that. And it says that he forgot all that Joseph had done for the people. And so he saw the Hebrews as a threat. God had blessed them. They multiplied. And so he enslaved them, really for political reasons. So this pharaoh did it for the wrong reason. Now, this word slavery or, or servant here in your Bible, it's nothing like the slavery that we were used to in the 18th century. Like, I want you to understand, that was kidnapping. That was forever. That was abusive, that was inhumane, and that was by force. But here in the Bible, you're going to see as we go through the text, you'll see that kidnapping under God's law is punishable by death. That isn't at all what we're talking about here. We're talking about indentured servitude here 
in the text that we're reading now, or bondservant. And we'll talk about bondservant in a minute. But notice how it says, if you buy a Hebrew slave, just underline that word, Hebrew. This is what's going on. The Jews, yes, they did have slaves from other nations that came from the spoils of war. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the book of Leviticus. But here in the text, it's talking about Hebrew slaves, indentured servitude. The Jews were not allowed to enslave their own people. That goes completely against their own law. But they could be indentured servants for a period of time. And what I mean by a period of time is that it was a temporary situation that was instituted or intended for people who were going through some kind of desperate poverty. Also, it was voluntary. And it was never intended to be a permanent condition. Look, there was no welfare system. And so what would happen is God would allow people to sell themselves to someone if they were in a desperate, desperate situation. And the person they sold, were sold to would feed them, they would shelter them, and they would clothe them for a six-year period of time. And on the seventh year, they would be set free. Now, any money that you made as a slave would go to the owner. For example, if you sold yourself into slavery and the master sent you to someone else's farm to work their crops, you'd get paid for that, but you wouldn't get the money. The owner would get the money. People could sell themselves off to pay off restitution. Maybe in your life you hurt somebody or you caused an accident that damaged someone else's property, their crops, accidentally set them on fire, and there was a judgment against you you could pay that off by selling yourself as a slave. You, maybe you took a loan out for a big debt issue, and maybe you were going to start your own farm, and the crops didn't work out, your animals died, your house, you know, whatever. You couldn't make the payment, and so you could found yourself in a big debt. You could sell yourself to the person you owed the debt to and work for him for six years, but on the seventh year, you'd be allowed to go free. So although God liberated the Hebrews out of slavery from Egypt, slavery is not universally prohibited in the Bible. So you could look at the slavery we're discussing here in context as an indentured servitude or also like being a bondservant. Now, when I say bondservant, I want you to understand that's really what we are as Christians to our Lord Jesus. Paul, Peter, Jude, James, they all considered themselves bondservants to Christ. They wrote in their epistles, I, Paul, a bondservant to my Lord Jesus. Okay, that's what it means. You're the master. You are Lord. I am your servant. I am your slave. I am indebted to you. And so that's what we are in the same way with Christ. And so that is the context as we get into these scriptures that I really want us to get our minds around. Okay, verse 3, let's... Let's pick up again. Speaking of a Hebrew slave, verse 3. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then the master shall bring him to God. Now, right here, 
it's not like you walk in front of God who's in some special place. This is referring to judges who act on God's behalf. Okay, so again, then I then his master shall bring him to God or judges who act on God's name. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So this is pretty intense right here. Um, what we just read. Let's break it down. Among the Israelites, a person could sell himself and his wife into slavery for debt reasons or, or extreme poverty. And the rich person that they sold themselves to would take care of them. Now, it says if you came with a wife, after the six years were up, you could leave with your wife. Right? Now, this is the cool part. This is the part that we haven't read yet, but we will. After the end of the six years were up, that master didn't just open up the door and say, there you go, hit the road, hasta la vista, don't let the door hit you on your way out, and then you went out and struggled on your own. No, instead, the master had to set you up, tried to help you get on your feet so that this wouldn't happen again. Look what this says. Turn, open your Bibles or turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15, and this is part as many people miss this, but in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 15, it talks about this exact situation after the six-year period is up. And it says this, If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. This is so cool. God is constantly reminding the people that you were once slaves. So you should treat the slaves that sell themselves to you in a respectful and in the same way. Now, if you come alone as a slave and you sell just yourself to a slave master, and during that six-year period, he gives you a wife, and your wife has children, well, once those six years are up and it's time for you to go, you don't get to go with your, your family. They stay with the master. However... If because of family affection, you love your family and you say, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. My life is actually pretty good in this arrangement. I have family. I have kids. I'm being taken care of. You can say to the master, I love my master. I want to stay. And if the judge approves it, then it says you are to have your earlobe pierced. And we don't really know all of the symbolism when it reads that you are to go to the door or the doorpost and put your ear on there and pierce it with an all. Okay, many people believe that that's a symbolic of the blood on the doorpost, just meaning that it's for life, that this is a lifetime decision. But what they would do, they would pierce your ear and they'd put a gold ring in it. And that was symbolic for everyone who saw you that you volunteered into a life of slavery. And people would know this was your life, but it was voluntary, but you were no longer to be treated as a slave with all the negative things that would come along with that. 
So let's go ahead and continue on reading. Verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master, who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the customs of daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or, or her conjugal rights, which means marriage rights, right? Probably implying housing. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, these are passages that can really challenge your thinking. They can make you struggle. Because right here, it's talking about female slaves and how they're treated differently than the male slaves. But understand these things. Many times, female slaves were sold as concubines or secondary wives. Almost think of it like a dowry, right? Some Hebrew fathers thought it more advantageous to sell their daughters to well-to-do neighbors than to allow them to marry within their own social class. And they would do that for the benefit of the daughter, knowing our people are poor. They're wealthy. You'll do better. So they'd allow you to marry this man who would take you in as a secondary wife. Remember, Abraham had two wives. He had Sarah and he had Hagar. Hagar was a concubine. She was a servant. She was a slave. But she bore Abraham children. And it's the same type of thing here. Now, if a daughter who was sold as a servant, as a concubine to a master, if she was sold and the master did not please her, it says, then this servant could be rescued by the nearest relative, meaning your near, a close relative could come and say, we want her to come back with us. And she would be able to leave without any payback of the loan that was given. But the one thing that the master could not do, he could not sell her to a foreigner. That's what it's talking about here. So if, if, a, if a father sold his daughter into slavery or as a servant, the master's not pleased with her. And so she goes back in order to recoup his money Maybe he'd be thinking about selling her to a foreigner. Totally not allowed. So the other thing it says here that she could redeem herself if she marries the master's son. If she marries the master's son, then she gets full family status. It says that she would, um, according to the custom of daughters, that just means full family status. She has the full rights of, of a daughter. And then lastly, it says if the master marries someone else, then he is required to provide the servant with the three essentials. Food, clothing, and shelter, marital rights, which probably, you know, refer to living quarters, but not necessarily sexual privilege. So right here, it can be a very challenging section to wrap our minds around. But when you study it out, you realize it was for the protection of the woman. She couldn't be abused. She couldn't just be kicked out. She couldn't be sold to a foreigner that she was actually well taken care of. Now, verses 12 through 17 are going to deal with capital crimes of punishment. Again, another very intense section of scripture in verse 12, it says, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, 
but God let him fall into, into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which you may flee. Right here, it's talking about a death that was an accident. And God is making an, an allowance for unintentional accidental death. And what they did is the guilty person who accidentally killed someone, he'd be allowed to flee to a city of refuge. Now, right now, they don't have those things. But later on, as they get established in the land, God allows six cities to be established for people who accidentally kill someone. And while they're waiting for the judge to go before a judge and a verdict to be handed down, they would be safe there from revenge. That's what that's talking about. Verse 14. If, however, a man acts presumptuously uh, presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. This is, this is wild right here. This is saying, look, we take premeditated murder so serious. It doesn't matter who you are. If you premeditate a murder and you carry it out, it doesn't matter if you're the priest. We will take you off the altar and you will give your life for murder of someone else. Equal justice for all. In verse 15, he goes on and he says, He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. This is, this is pretty intense as well. These verses here list four crimes that all required the death penalty. Premeditated murder, which coincides with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Physical violence against parents. Kidnapping and verbal abuse of parents. Now, physical violence against parents and verbally abusing, that's the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and father. Now, our society in general, we support the first and the third of those, premeditated murder and kidnapping. However, these ordinances concerning father and mother, they do not coincide with our culture today. And that's probably a good thing for me because I probably wouldn't be here right now if the death penalty was lipping off to your parents. Maybe some of you have done even more. Maybe some of you have actually raised a hand to a parent. Well, the death penalty was required in ancient times. Our society does not coincide with that, but it does point to the enormous importance of the parent-child relationship in ancient Israel. They stressed it so much. They honored that relationship. And most people believe that that relationship was thought of as the relationship between Father God and the children of Israel. And so obedience was such a big part of the covenant as a whole because God was helping them to understand there has to be a respect, a separation between a holy God and sinful man. Now this next section beginning in verse 18, talks about law of injuries. Let's go ahead and read that. If men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. 
He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. So right here, just talking about if a fight breaks out, two men are fighting and one man hurts another man. While this is helping them to understand that the man who couldn't work, there would need to be compensation for that. The man who is injured, um, he can't work, he's hurt. The other man is to pay for his medical expenses. The other man is to pay for his lost wages until he is nursed back to health. And all his lost wages, wages would be covered. That's why it says, while he is walking around outside in his staff, that's what that's referring to. Look, there was no... There was no bankruptcy court. There was no welfare system. God was making arrangements. God had given these laws to the men that, God, that Moses had appointed to judge over the people. You remember back in chapter 18, his father-in-law says, Moses, why are you doing it all on your own? It's too much. Appoint men who fear God. Appoint men who love honesty and hate dishonest gain. So these laws are really for them to help them govern the people in all things. And so this is one of those laws, laws of injury. Verse 20. If a man strikes his male or female slave with the rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. Now, it doesn't tell us what the punishment is. But probably the punishment would be determined by the judges as they looked at the intent, the judges that were speaking on God's behalf. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. Now, one of the most controversial verses in all the Bible right here, and, and the world loves to attack the Old Testament when you find verses like this. It says, if a slave died from being beaten by the master, that he'd be punished put it all together, the context. The judges would, would look at the intent. And if it was premeditated, then he too. Death penalty for him. If a slave lived but sustained permanent injury, put it all together from everything we're going to read in this chapter, then that slave is to go free. However, it says if the slave recovered quickly, meaning he wasn't disfigured, he didn't lose a tooth, right? He, he w didn't lose an eye, and you're going to see that coming up. He wasn't disfigured. He wasn't that bad. Then no punishment was to be handed out. The master, his penalty would be the lost wages. He would have to nurse the slave back to health. Apparently, homicide wasn't intended, and so we don't know exactly. And because it's not super clear, lots of controversy. So this didn't give a master the right to beat a slave within an inch of his life. That is clear. Oftentimes people will say, because it didn't say specifically that the master who beat the slave to death would get the death penalty, they let their minds go all over the place. But you got to take the whole chapter in context. God told us constantly that men were created in his image. And God cherishes all human life. So a very challenging passage. It's created much controversy, but not as much as this next verse. Verse 22. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. And he shall pay as the judge decide. But if there are any further 
injury, then you shall point as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So here you have a law that says if men are fighting and in the struggle, one of the men strikes a pregnant woman and she delivers her baby prematurely, but there's no injury, then the man is just to pay restitution to the woman's husband according to whatever the judge has decided, whatever the judge's determination is. But if there was injury to the mom or the baby, now remember the baby was just inside the mother's womb. But if there is injury to the mom or the baby, then the penalty would be proportion to the nature of the injury. Life for life, it starts out saying. Life for life. Then that person would be forfeiting his life if the baby died or the mother died. Look, involuntary manslaughter was usually not a capital offense in ancient times. But here it clearly is. The baby was just in the mother's womb. The unborn fetus is viewed in this passage as just as much of a human being as the mother. There's no other way to read it. There's no other way, no other conclusion you can come up with. The abortion of a fetus was considered murder. Now you might not like that word abortion. But what does it say? It says, if a woman was with child so that she gives birth prematurely. She gave birth because of a violent act and the baby died. The Bible here in many other places considers abortion murder. If you have a problem with what I'm saying, it's not with me. It's with God's word. God wants the unborn protected. The Bible is very clear. A person's physical loss by injury was to be punished by a similar loss to the offender. Why? Well, God did this because he knows human nature is to extract revenge. If this would have happened in a real life situation, maybe the father of the baby would not only take revenge on the man, but kill his whole family. God knows this is human nature that we go overboard when it comes to revenge. Like kill them all. We get this attitude. And you go, well, how do you know if that's true? Look, there's examples biblically that help us to understand this happens. There needed to be a law of retaliation. And that's really what this is. Look, I'll give you an example. You remember Lamech. Lamech was the great, great, great grandson of Cain. You remember what he said? Lamech said to his wives, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77fold. He's saying, you kill one of my guys, I'll kill 77 of yours. A boy struck me, so I killed him. It is human nature to extract revenge. God knows what he's doing. In verse 26, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. 
And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. Here in this case, the law of retaliation doesn't apply to the master, but any permanent injury to a slave releases the slave immediately to freedom. Verse 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner uh, has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Whether, uh, whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. If an ox scores a male or a female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall get stoned. These are the laws that were given to the people for injury. If a bull says gore someone to death, the animal is to be killed. But if it could have been prevented, the animal had done it before, the owner had been warned about this behavior, but the owner did nothing, then he too was to give up his life, the ultimate respect for life. Both the animal and the man would die. However, in verse 30, it says that he could pay a ransom. That if he could, av he could avoid the death penalty, if he could come up with the requested amount of compensation determined or set forth by the dead person's personal relatives or family. It goes on and it says, if an ox scores a slave, then the owner is to be compensated with 30 shekels of silver and the ox stoned. I, I, guess, I guess they had a lot of problems with oxes during this time because there's a lot of talk about oxes or bulls. It's another word for bulls. Now, verses 33 and uh, following to the end here, they deal with the laws, and I'm just going to say it, the laws of stupidity. Let's just read verse 33. If a man opens a pit, or digs a pit and does not, cover, does not cover it over, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. If one man ox hurts another so that it dies, then he shall sell the ox and divide its price equally, and also they shall divide the dead ox. Or if it is known that the ox was previously in the habit of goring, yet its owner had not confined it, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall become his. So look, these laws were given because we need to understand everything we do has consequences. If a man digs a pit and fails to cover the hole and another person's livestock falls into the hole, you got to pay. Now, they would, you go, why would they be digging a pit? They used to dig these big pits. They would chisel them out of bedrock. They're called cisterns. They would do them because in this arid environment, it didn't rain very often. But when it did, you wanted to capture all of that rain. I studied this out. I looked at pictures of ancient cisterns, and it was amazing. Some of these things were massive. There's the cistern of Manasseh, and it's said that it could contain up to 10.5 million gallons of water they would make these channels that would all lead to these big pits. If you did that, you had to cover it up. One, you covered it up so evaporation wouldn't you know, get, uh, evaporate all your water, but also so that an animal, notice it doesn't say human, 
because they assumed that you would be looking. Now, if that happened today, we'd fall into it because we always have our cell phones in our faces. But back then, they didn't have that. And so it was mainly for an animal that you would cover it up. Lastly, if your bull killed someone else's bull, then the loss was to be shared equally. But if the owner neglected to pin up the crazy ox, the crazy bull, then he must pay for the dead bull. So we want to stop there for today, but these passages really make you think. You know, I wrestled with them. I really wanted to make sure what I was saying was was accurate, and I hope I've been able to bring it out and make you think about these passages in a deeper way. But I do want to encourage you to go back and study these passages out. Look, we, we know that law can never change human nature. But it can regulate behavior and therefore preserve life and protect property. That, that's the goal of the law. Without some kind of law, God knew that the people would evolve into anarchy. And although the law doesn't guarantee a perfect society, it does promote order. And so God gave the people these rules and regulations not to try to control everything about their lives, but to help promote unity, to help promote order, and to help them regulate their lives. Trust and love your God. Don't run from Him. Love your neighbor as yourself, the two most important rules. If we get those down, all these other rules or laws will just become second nature and be obvious to us. We are all indebted to the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the cross at Calvary. He paid the price. It was him that went on the cross for our sins. So let's go ahead and pray. And thank you for tuning in. And we'll see you uh, in the next couple weeks. Amen. Our God in heaven, thank you once again for your word. And Father, we're grateful that you give us what's best for us. And Father, we know that we don't always know that at the time. Lord, we are grateful that your word teaches us the best ways to live. And Father, sometimes we didn't even know what sin was until the law came and helped us to see what we were doing was wrong. Father, would you bless each and every person who was able to see this uh, podcast today, Father, that they'd be thinking about their own lives and where they're falling short. But most of all, Father, help us to turn toward you to see that if we just could love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love one another, that everything else would fall right into place. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.